Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Susanna Heschel to talk about the work and legacy of her father, Abraham Joshua Heschel. In our conversation, we talk about what we take away from Heschel's writings, as well as his moral and political example a half century after his passing, and what we still have to learn from him today. We also talk about Susanna's efforts to publish her father's writings, as well as her own research in modern Jewish history and Jewish thought. Indeed, she's a towering scholar in her own right, and we're just so glad to have her on the podcast to be able to talk about a whole range of issues about the meaning and context of her father's work, and also how it relates to her own research and thinking about Jewish thought and why it matters. Susanna Heschel is the Eli Black Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth. She's written extensively on Jewish and German intellectual history, including her books Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus and The Aryan Jesus, Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany. She's also played a major part in the continuing publication of the work of Abraham Joshua Heschel including Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity, which appeared in 1998. For those of you who aren't familiar with Abraham Joshua Heschel, I should say a few words about who he was and why he matters. Heschel was one of the most important Jewish writers, theologians, and political activists of the 20th century. He was born in Warsaw in 1907, a scion of a preeminent family of Hasidic rabbis, and he pursued his doctorate in Berlin in the 1920s, where he also studied at the Hochschule für die Wissenschaft des Studentums, the rabbinical seminary and institute of higher Jewish learning there. In 1940, Heschel fled to the U.S., where he took a position teaching at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, and then in 1946, he moved to New York where he taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary. It's been almost a half century since Heschel passed away in 1972, but his work still speaks to so many people. And today, we'll look at why that is, and what we can learn from him and his legacy. Heschel was a prolific writer, and he penned a series of important books and essays, including a path-breaking study of the prophets, Theological writings, including The Sabbath, Man is Not Alone, and God in Search of Man. And he was also a political activist who was deeply involved in the civil rights movement, famously marching alongside Martin Luther King in Selma. Susanna joins us to talk about her father, his writings and his work, his thought and his theology, and his political legacy too. One of the reasons that Abraham Joshua Heschel still speaks to us today is that he has had so many important legacies in diverse fields, in historical scholarship, in Jewish thought, in the realm of theology, and in civil rights. And people can pick up on what speaks to them in particular. What's more, the struggles and issues of his time are still with us today. People are still trying to figure out how they can understand and relate to the idea of God. Jews are still 
trying to engage with their past and try to figure out their relationship with the Jews of Eastern Europe before the Holocaust, who Heschel in so many ways seemed to represent. And the civil rights movement may have been largely successful, but we're still living in a world with inequality and prejudice and hate. And if Abraham Joshua Heschel were alive today, he would probably still be on the front lines of the fight for justice. I'm so glad that Susanna Heschel could join us and share her personal perspective on her father and what we learn from him in our 21st century context, and also to share how all of this intersects with her own intellectual projects in modern Jewish thought and history. Thanks for listening in. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Hi, Susanna. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad that you could join me because I've been reading your father's work, you know, I feel like for decades now. And part of the reason why is because it's accessible. So many of his essays and his his books, not only were they written in English, some of them to begin with, right, but that they are available to the general public in ways that I think that some other really important scholars are not necessarily as readily available, besides the fact that his writing is clear and understandable. But I think that what's really interesting about your father and his work is that he has had such an important legacy. You know, it's been almost 50 years since he passed away, yet his legacy is is still so enduring and he's still such a, a popular figure as a theologian, as an academic. His work is still influential in a lot of ways. And so when you look back on your father, obviously he's your father. That's a big part of the story here as well for you. But what do you think about his legacy? what we learn from him, especially now that we're, you know, more or less a half century since he passed away. What's striking to me is that my father's work seems to be so incredibly alive 50 years later. And so many people write to me and tell me that they're so inspired by his writings. And what's striking to me also is that these are people who come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And that's something really unique, I think, among Jewish thinkers to be read so broadly by so many different kinds of people in different countries. For example, one of my father's books, Who is Man?, was just translated into Urdu by a professor of Islamic theology in Islamabad, Pakistan. So that's amazing. And then, of course, Chinese and and Korean and Japanese and Portuguese and all these different languages. So what is it about him that makes him so appealing? You know, what people often say to me is that they read his work And they find that he has an answer for them. It's as if he's speaking to them. And I think that's very special. Part of the reason, I think, is that my father was able to achieve an intimacy with people. He was very open and always listened very deeply in the way that a Hasidic Rebbe would listen to you with his open heart. Because of that ability to, to empathize and to achieve intimacy through that kind of listening. I think people feel that he understands them, that he's speaking to them. The intimacy comes through in his writing, and that's extraordinary. What I find really credible is that whenever I meet somebody from the civil rights movement, they hug me. They tell me how grateful they are to my father, how much they love him and appreciate him. I I met President Obama, and he said to me, your father is our hero. And I was so moved by that. And I think what's 
was especially striking is that people from the civil rights movement are so grateful. People in the African-American community know what it means to express gratitude. And that is very deeply moving to me. The world is a different world now than it was in the 70s or in the 60s or in the 80s. If you had to think about his legacy and, and, and what we learn uh, from your father's work and from the things that, that he did, what do you think are the most enduring aspects of this legacy since so much has changed? My father used to say that people understand my work depending on what they bring to it. So people come from so many different backgrounds with different kinds of questions. And they come to his work and they ask their questions. And he responds in different ways. But you know, some of these questions are eternal questions about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a religious person, what is piety, what does it mean to feel despair, what is it to be a Jew? And he addresses these concerns, and they're not of one moment. In terms of his political work, yeah, so much of what he was concerned about in the 60s is still with us. How we treat the elderly, racism in American society, inequality of income, poverty, atrocities committed by the government. These continue to be issues for us as Americans and as Jews to this day. I think he would have been appalled by the rise of anti-Semitism recently, in recent years. He would have been appalled by the person in the White House right now. He would have been deeply upset. But he also knew how to make alliances with people, and he felt that was very important. There were very few people that he refused to talk to. He refused to go back to Germany or Poland, for example, because he felt that everything he would see there, even every tree, would be a reminder. And emotionally, it was impossible for him. But he used to meet people of all kinds, whether it was the Pope or rabbis of different denominations. He, he wasn't narrow in that sense. This, to me, is an element where I think that maybe you know, people have stepped back from in a certain way. I think when we talk about the rise of anti-Semitism over the past you know, year or so, or the discourse about anti-Semitism and, and anti-Zionism, one of the challenges that we have seen, actually, that I think that it's really quite interesting, but it's also disturbing, is the way in which some of these alliances that historically we have between American Jews and other groups have begun to break down in certain ways. Uh, I think this is one of these aspects where there's a lot to think about. And that what you were just saying about what your father did and, and what he was a part of, maybe we can learn something from. You know, one of the things I find striking is my father's work on the prophets. So he wrote his doctoral dissertation in Berlin in 1932, and it was called Prophetic Consciousness. And it was a very, it is a very sharp critique of German Protestant scholarship on the prophets, because the German Protestant scholars, starting in the 1890s, were very denigrating toward the prophets. They dismissed them as ecstatics who were sort of writhing on the ground and didn't really know what they were saying, etc. And that denigration was very unfortunate because it also meant that pastors and intellectuals and political leaders in Germany couldn't call on a prophetic tradition of justice when they wanted to speak out, let's say, against a government policy. Now, of course, the German-Jewish tradition was very different. They talked about the prophets teaching justice and what they called ethical monotheism, and they said Judaism is prophetic Judaism, the teachings of the prophets. Now, all of this reached a climax in December of 1915 when Ernst Trelch, great Protestant theologian, a liberal theologian, gave a lecture in Berlin in which he, in a sense, mocked not only the prophets, 
whom he called, you know, rural figures from little villages in rural areas, sort of country bumpkins, one might say. And they came to urban centers with kings and economies and wealthy people and armies. And they talked about making peace and stopping war. And how naive could that be? And he also attacked Hermann Cohen, the great German-Jewish philosopher, who had identified Judaism with prophetic tradition and even identified Jewish teaching with Germany, Deutschtum and Judentum. So Trelch tried to demolish all of that, and the result was there was no prophetic tradition available in Germany during the 1920s. My father's dissertation was a critique of that, and a very important one, and he also brought Hasidic and Jewish traditional rabbinic and medieval thought about prophetic experience and about divine revelation to bear. Now, that book was then expanded by my father in an English version that was published in 1962. And it was incredibly important to civil rights leaders who used to carry it with them. Andrew Young said he used to see people show up at Selma and elsewhere carrying a copy of the prophets with them. And that's amazing. He gave a kind of theological um, language and configuration to the civil rights movement. And I think it's important for us to also recognize that the civil rights movement was also an ecumenical movement, very different from what was happening in Rome at the same time, which was the formulation of Nostratate, the Catholic Church's relationship with other religions. They based that statement, Nostratate, on the epistles of St. Paul. But the civil rights movement was about the prophets and about the Hebrew Bible. And it brought together Americans from all different kinds of backgrounds. That is extraordinary. That kind of, of work and that kind of bridge building that we saw over the course of the 20th century perhaps isn't happening as much today. Or some of those connections are breaking down over certain kinds of issues like the occupation in you know, Israel and Palestine. What is so interesting about your father is that there are these diverse legacies. And some of them have been picked up on more than others. He had such an important part to play and has been revered for his work in the civil rights movement. Also, his work against the war in Vietnam. There are all of these different things that people can pick up on and can look to as they try to understand the work of your father, of Abraham Joshua Heschel. And this, to me, is really interesting because part of what has happened with his work and with his legacy, is that it has been received in so many different ways by so many different groups, by diverse sets of people within the American Jewish population, among Americans at large, even, I guess, among people who speak Urdu, who are reading his work. So part of what interests me as we think about his legacy and about what we learn from him is, why do you think that his work and, and his activities and his legacy have had such a powerful afterlife in so many different ways for different people. Well, one of the reasons is that my father always looked for ways in which we can find common ground. What unites us? We may disagree about some things, for example, in religious dialogue. He said, as Jews, we shouldn't talk to Christians about Jesus Nothing a Jew can say about Jesus will ever be in agreement with a Christian theologian, but we can talk about what he called depth theology, about moments of religious despair, moments when it's hard to pray. We can talk about the Psalms and the prophets whom we share. Uh, so he looked for, for things that can unite us. I also want to say that my father came out of a Hasidic tradition that is very much about gratitude. 
and appreciation, about praise, prayer as praise. My feeling is that, you know, the African-American community has expressed enormous gratitude for my father. I haven't heard that from the Jewish community, and I worry that Jews are not expressing sufficient gratitude. I think of Derrida's little book on forgiveness, and I said, why is it that Jews are always expecting people to ask their forgiveness? He starts out by talking about a visit by the Pope John Paul II to a synagogue, asking for forgiveness. That's not good. Where is our expression of gratitude instead of looking always to forgive people? I think we have a deep problem. It's part of the problem of the lacrimose way that Jewish history is presented. It's also part of the problem of Zionism that presents Israel as always being under threat. All of these things may be true up to a point, but there is another side to the story. We're not the only ones who were persecuted. For example, I would rather have been a a Jew than a serf or a slave or even a woman of wealth, for that matter, so throughout the course of Jewish history. But uh, I think there's a way in which we omit the, the good things, that which we need to celebrate and be thankful for and express gratitude for what the world has also given to us. Because, in fact, there were Christian Zionists who also helped us and also deserve gratitude. So we need to cultivate that sense of gratitude, which is something that I learned from my father. So do you think that this is connected to, like you said, his Hasidic background? Or do you think that this has to do with his own personal experience in terms of his life as a refugee and and coming to the U.S. essentially at the last minute? So I would say, first of all, my father was someone who was never bitter. He was also never depressed. He was, I think, a person of gratitude and appreciation because he was a religious Jew. But I also think that we can all cultivate a sense of gratitude, and he felt that as well. It's a question of how we want to construct our lives to become human beings at the highest level in the richest way. And one of the things I myself am grateful for is having known him because I realize what a human being is capable of. Part of what you've been doing for, I want to say, you know, the past 20 years and more has been publishing, helping to publish your father's writings. And in a way, you know, it's perhaps part of what we're talking about today as well is this question of what is his legacy. And I think that you have a really particular insight into that, not only because you know, you're his daughter and you knew him so personally, but because you've been part of helping to cultivate this legacy as well. Through the publication of his work, you a few years ago helped to convene a conference at UCLA about your father. And I, I see this as part of like a large project of thinking about the repercussions and the continuing relevance of what your father did and what he wrote and what he has given us. You know, so as part of this project, do you maybe want to say something briefly about how you see your role in the further development of your father's work and in particular the publication of some of his writings? So after my father died, my mother and I met with his publisher, Roger Strauss, from Far Strauss and Drew, and we talked about the manuscripts that were left and things that ought to be published, and he was so encouraging. Uh, and so I put together a book some years later, Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity, more recently, Essential Writings of Abraham Heschel for Orbis Press. 
And yes, and then it was actually um, Maury Polner, who just passed away, who uh, invited me to write an essay for his journal, Present Tense, that was published by the American Jewish Committee at that time about my father and civil rights movement. That was the first piece I wrote. And occasionally I would be asked to speak about him, which I love doing. I still love when I'm invited because I'm a historian of uh, German religious thought. I do think about where his work fits in, and I I see that background, uh, and I see the sharp departure he makes in his dissertation from what came before. But I also, also have a feeling that today in Germany, even though there's a lot of interest in Jewish things, they don't understand my father. And that to me also is in a way intriguing. What is it about the German, say, reappropriation of German Jewish thought? They don't necessarily know very much, especially about the 19th century. There's a kind of romance about the the 1920s and Walter Benjamin and, and Gershom Scholem and such things. But what happened after the war and in America, it's not as well known. And I think also what my father encountered in his day as a student in uh, the late 20s and 30s in Germany was that there was no sensibility for the kind of piety represented by Hasidism. And I think that's prevailed to this day, which is unfortunate. I mean, I think that one of the things that is so interesting about your father, about Abraham Joshua Heschel, is that he, in his own life, intersected with so many things that were going on in so many different places. It's one of the same ways I think about Hasidism in general as a movement that spans the entirety of modern Jewish history throughout more or less the entirety of Eastern Europe. Your father also, his own life, going from Poland to Germany. First of all, this was a relatively common pathway. We see this with a whole range of intellectual figures, as well as just regular people who went on this westward trajectory over the course of the 20th century. Of course, there were many who couldn't make it. But the point being that over the course of his lifetime, he was in so many different places, doing so many different things and interacting with major figures. Like you talk about the reception of Hasidism in Germany. Well, he was there with Martin Buber in the 1920s and 30s. And then, of course, he makes his way to the U.S. and the whole story with the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And you know, So when you mentioned you know, just before this one element of the reception of your father and his work in Germany, I'm curious if you want to say anything more about these complex intersections. It's not just a handful of books that he's written, but he's part of a much more rich and deep history. By contrast, he is very appreciated in the Netherlands. So ask why. And I think in Germany, there's also an anxiety about being moved by a writer. There's also a way in which the Protestant world has, let's say, shut down a lot of emotional elements, emotional components of religiosity. And it's difficult for them to appreciate that aspect of my father. They'd rather have a dry philosophical idea than a a religious moment. So that's the difficulty there. But, you know, sometimes... (laughs) What I find as his daughter, what I find at times, I don't know whether to say perhaps amusing and annoying, at other times irritating, when people, people who never met my father and start talking about him and make so many mistakes. So I'll just give you an example. My father was very close 
to his Hasidic family. His sister had married the Kapitschnitzer Rebbe, and they lived on the Lower East Side of New York. They had come from Vienna uh, just before the war. And our cousin was the Novominsker. My, my father's mother was the twin sister of the Novominsker Rebbe. And his son was in America, and the Boyana Rebbe, and so on. My father was in touch with the family. This was our family. He spoke on the phone with the Kapitschnitzer at least once a week, and we, of course, visited and so on. But it was more than that. He talked to them about what he was doing, about civil rights and about Nostra Tate and about a lot of the issues that came up, including about Germany and so on. That was a closeness, a family that was built on love. So somebody wrote that when my father passed away and my mother and I made a funeral and that the Hasidic family came and took over. They didn't take over. Family doesn't take over. Family comes to you when you lost someone, and it was natural and wonderful. And when my mother passed away, I, I asked my Hasidic cousins to come and daven tillim at the funeral service. And when I got married, I had a Hasidic wedding, a black hat wedding, etc. Not because anybody took anything over, but because that's what I wanted. So I think that element of our family, of my father, isn't understood by people. Sometimes people think that the Jewish Theological Seminary, because it trains conservative rabbis, must have had a conservative service in the synagogue. But it was an Orthodox service, and all the faculty members were Orthodox, and men and women sat separately, etc. Everybody was Orthodox, what you call Orthodox, you know, these days. Uh, it wasn't a conservative—in fact— People on the faculty, there were some who would never even walk into a conservative synagogue, even though they were training men to become conservative rabbis, for example. I think that what's interesting about it, I think that, that in certain ways there are different Heschels, perhaps, that different groups of people read and understand your father in different ways. And part of that has to do with the fact that what we have access to is his writing, primarily. And we read it in our own way from our own perspective. We interpret the text ourselves. And so I think that, that when people look at your father's work, people see him in different ways because they pick up on different aspects of his life and of his work. Some people emphasize his sort of Hasidic background. You know, some people look primarily at his theological writing. Some people are really taken primarily by his political activity. But this is what he said. People get out of my work what they bring to it. So he is able to speak to people across a broad spectrum. You can be Christian or Muslim or Jewish or atheist and still find something there. I mean, do you think that these different legacies that he has are competing? My sense, you know, having read some of your work as well as other scholarship on, on Heschel, is that people emphasize different things. If you read some of the work that's been written by some of your father's students, I mean, I think that there's a very different take on your father and his work from some of those scholars as opposed to the way that you've written about him. And of course, you had a very different relationship with him than anybody could, you know, being his daughter. But I think that your writing and the way that you've written about him, you've tended to focus more on his public activities. If you ask me what I wrote in the last year, I've written an article about the history of German scholarship on the prophets, biblical scholarship that situates my father both within Protestant and Jewish German thinking on the prophets. Mm -hmm. uh, so I take a historical approach. 
The other thing that's coming out that I finished writing about a year ago is about my father's relationship with Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, and I talk about their relationship and their uh, exchange of letters, but I also talk about their use of irony. Niebuhr wrote a book called The Irony of American History, and it was an important category of interpretation for him. And my father used a trope of irony in his writings that I argue comes out of the prophets. Uh, so, in fact, I don't think that's all that different from what his students have written. They also try to contextualize him and present an aspect of his work. Uh, it's not that different. I mean, Art Green's piece on the three Warsaw Jewish mystics is a great article comparing my father to other figures of the same era. And my article with Reinhold Niebuhr about my father and Reinhold Niebuhr is a similar kind of genre of scholarship. From what I can see, I'm the only person who's written an article about my father's relationship with Martin Luther King. That article came out about, oh, first came out maybe 20, 30 years ago. And I've written other things since then, more recently in the journal Telos. I'm a little surprised that other people haven't picked up on that topic. But my article is quoted then by all kinds of people. Lewis Baldwin, for example, and Rufus Burrow and so on. Why do you think that different groups of people have understood your father differently, you know, especially when you think about some of these aspects that we talked about? I'm not sure if I would say differently, but I would say this. So as my father said, people, depends <laughs> what you bring to his work. So people who know a lot about Kabbalah and Hasidut, like Arthur Green, can see those elements in his writings. And I appreciate that. Then there are people who have different sorts of backgrounds and bring out other kinds of elements. Uh, there's someone in, in England, for example, who, who wrote a book that is also very much about Protestant issues, Protestant theology. Okay. But yes, the problem is that within the field of Jewish studies, there are many subfields that are dominated by men or really the exclusive preserve of men. And I think about for example, in terms of Israel studies, there are women who do anthropological work, literary work, work on cinema, but not so much on security studies. That's a very male field. The political issues, the major figures are men. It tends to be true also of modern Jewish thought. Modern Jewish thought tends to be a male field. Now, why does this happen? Some of it happens because the men in the field are not mentoring. When I was a graduate student, I cannot begin to tell you the number of men who were patronizing, condescending, completely uninterested in mentoring me or even taking me seriously as a scholar. My work has been cited by people in the field who are my age or younger, but almost never by people who are older than I am. So I would also say that that's helpful. There's a new, fresh generation, and it is like fresh air. When a new generation comes into a field, interested in issues of theory, for example. Uh, so I appreciate that. But yes, modern Jewish thought has been for an awfully long time dominated by men, male scholars, and that's too bad. So I know of very few women who've written about my father as a result. Do you think that this is related to broader systemic challenges within the field of Jewish studies, or is this connected more to issues with intellectual history itself? Intellectual history is a field that's also dominated by men. I don't know. I think the causes may be complicated. In some, some cases, they can be quite small, a small moment. I'm thinking now of the work I've done on 19th century Jewish scholars in Germany who came to universities as talented, smart young men. 
and in some cases were taken in by a professor who appreciated how smart, for example, I'm thinking of a Professor Freitag of Arabic at University of Bonn in 1829, 1830, 1831. He had some Jewish students and he welcomed them warmly. But there are other cases when that didn't happen. Some Jewish students went to a university and they weren't warmly welcomed. Okay, I think of Anne-Marie Schimmel in the 1930s in Germany, a scholar of Islam and of Islamic mysticism, and how badly she was treated by men who completely dismissed her. And then, of course, she went on to become a great scholar. So it can be even on the personal level that these things happen. And it's ugly and it's disgusting. Now, when my father taught at the seminary, yes, the students were men. My father was not well treated at the seminary. I think everybody knows that. He was treated very badly. And it hurt him. And it hurt me, too. I think about the story of Freud walking with his father and his father telling him about having, once as a young man, having uh, run into an anti-Semitic man who knocked his hat off into the gutter. And Freud asked his father, what did you do? And the father said, well, I picked up my hat out of the gutter and took it. And this becomes a big moment for Freud, or at least in the minds of the interpreters. You know, how could his father not have, what, what did he expect him to do? Try to beat up the anti-Semitic boy? No. But that he somehow bowed to this unpleasant situation. Well, imagine what it was like for me growing up, knowing how badly my father was being treated, and knowing that this wasn't just going on during the week in the, in the office building, but even in the synagogue itself. My father was never invited to give a Devar Torah, that he had to sit in the third row and couldn't sit in the front with the other faculty, etc. They did what they could to be demeaning. And he used to tell me, don't become an academic because it's just too awful, it's too painful. But at the same time, being badly treated and being excluded in so many ways from the seminary also gave my father certain freedom to go out in the world and do other things. And that's great. One of the things that I like to think about of your father and about his work is about how we can historicize it and how we can periodize it. I guess there are two parts to this. The first one is the way in which we place what he was doing within the historical context of the mid-20th century. Uh, and then the other part of it is how we can periodize it and understand how it changed over the course of time. One of the problems that some people have when they write about my father, as you say, they don't know what to do with it, with his work. And so they try to translate his ideas into their language. And that's unfortunate. First of all, it doesn't accomplish very much to do that. But also his language is so magnificent that, I mean, imagine taking Shakespeare and giving a kind of Cliff Notes, you know, modern language version or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's, that's too bad. And it's reductionist, and that's unfortunate. But the question is, what are we trying to accomplish when we write about a thinker? What is it we want? What do we want from my father? In part, you know, he's a very human person. So he's writing to human beings to try to talk about problems that we face. And those are problems that sometimes we don't want to talk about that are very intimate or we're ashamed of or we don't know how to handle them. We don't even sometimes know how to articulate what is bothering us. Why is it I go to the synagogue and I don't feel anything. Why is it it's boring? What? Is it something about me? Is it Judaism that I want to reject? Well, he talks about what's the problem with the synagogue service itself and with what we expect from rabbis and what we don't hear. So that human element is very important. So what do we want to get from his work? 
ultimately? Do we want to say, look here, he's reflecting a Hasidic idea? We could say in his book, Torah Menashemayim, he's giving us texts and issues that are being addressed by the rabbis that no one's ever talked about before. I think he, in part, is trying to get away from apologetics, from the kind of approach, for example, of Ephraim Orbach in his book Chazal, where he tries to say that the rabbis of the Talmud were just as smart and insightful as Plato. So as long as the rabbis are as good as the Greeks, therefore it's okay. What, it's okay to be an Orthodox Jew and follow the Talmud because it's, it's ridiculous. My father doesn't have any apologetics. And that's something unique to me among modern Jewish thinkers and historians, not to speak in an apologetic tone about Judaism and to think in new ways of the new ideas. He brings out elements of rabbinic thought that nobody ever thought about before. He also saves aspects of Judaism that were destroyed because of the Nazis. So this new book came out, 850 pages on Hasidism, written by eight men. And in the introduction, the question is posed. It's a short introduction. What's the question that we want to ask in this book about Hasidism? The question is, is Hasidism a modern movement? I have to tell you, that's the kind of question that scholars of religion used to ask in the 1970s. Nobody really asks it anymore. It's not a meaningful question. I don't think that's what anybody's interested in anyway about Hasidism. We know, we see people who are very, very religious. What is that religiosity all about? What meaning do those people have in their lives? What is it like to be Hasidic? What kind of a piety is this? And why are there people who grow up secular and decide to become Hasidic? What is it? What's going on? Why is it so meaningful to some people? What do they find there? So there's a way in which we're missing the religiosity that's the heart of the Hasidic movement. I don't want to know in what way is Hasidism like me. I want to know how it's not like me. What's different there that I have something to learn beyond the limitations of my own life and my own thinking? I want to hear something new and different. So that's what my father strives to do in his work, whether he's talking about Hasidism or rabbinic thought, or even about Maimonides. And it's always with a human dimension. What is meaningful about Hasidism? So I love, for example, one of the things he says in Man is Not Alone. My father wrote a book about the Kotzka Rebbe at the end of his life. But there are elements of Kotzka thinking already in his earliest books. So my father talks about how important it is for Judaism to be authentic to who you are. So that's important because you think about it. How do you know if something's authentic to how I am? First of all, I have to know who I am. I have to know who is the authentic me. And that's not so easy. So he's, first of all, telling us and demanding of us that we do some self-exploration, self-examination, really, who am I and what am I striving to become? Because I may be born, but I'm the one who creates my life, he says, as a work of art. But then he says, Judaism should be authentic to who I am, which means, he says, and man is not alone, I can't practice my Judaism the way, let's say, my grandparents practice Judaism. I can't do somebody else's Judaism. My Judaism has to be authentic to who I am. So my father has no prescription. You know, Arnie Eisen wrote an article some years ago in the journal Modern Judaism, I think in the 1980s or 90s, 
in which he complained that my father doesn't tell us exactly which halachot, which aspects of Jewish law a Jew has to follow. What do you have to follow? What do you not have to follow? Well, of course not. Never. He wouldn't do that, my father. Judaism has to be authentic to who you are. There's no formula to be a human being. And he says to practice Judaism the way other people do, he says that would be spiritual plagiarism. Spiritual plagiarism. It's a marvelous phrase. Also very affirming of me, my uniqueness. Each person is unique. He always emphasized that. Everyone is unique. Everyone is different. I don't want to find someone who's just like me. I want to know what that person is about and experience the world through another pair of eyes and another mind. And I love that about him. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're highlighting, you know, again, sort of what is in your father's work that really speaks to so many people. And the example you gave of Arnie Eisen saying, you know, like, I wish he would have given us more detail on what to do. It speaks to this legacy. I might even make the case that you see this as kind of a, a fundamental element of the discourse of intellectual history in general, right? You speak about these people in the present tense. When we talk about Horkheimer and Adorno, we say Horkheimer and Adorno say X, Y, and Z. We don't say that they said X, Y, and Z. And so this, this again, might be perhaps part of the way in which scholars think about intellectual history, right? That these great thinkers are still with us. But if we try to think about them as historical figures at the same time, it poses all sorts of problems. Like you were bringing together, you know, Man is Not Alone, right? Which was written in the early 50s with the book on the Cusker Rebbe, which he wrote towards the end of his life, you know, so almost 20 years later, also for a very different audience. These books that he wrote in the 50s that have been so celebrated and so widely read, you know, they're written in English. They're written for an American audience. The Kutsk book was written in Yiddish. And uh, now I guess part of it's been translated into Hebrew recently. You know, but in a way, he's writing that for a very different audience just through the choice of his language. And the same thing can be said about his dissertation on the prophets and then its translation in the 60s. It's the, the expanded version of what he wrote 30 years beforehand, but it's written in a very different context and for a very different audience. And so I think one of the challenges that we have is, on the one hand, to try to understand his thought as an object that we can comprehend and that we can utilize as a toolkit, you know, whether we want to understand intellectual history or want to apply it in a kind of a question of Jewish religious life or any other kind of religious context. But I think that it's also useful for us to try to to historicize him. And I, I, this is partially me as a historian speaking. How do you think that we can understand your father's work in the context in which he was living? As a historical figure, instead of essentializing him into a single idea or, or a set of ideas or systematic thinking. So first of all, I think we have to approach a thinker and say, what were his or her questions? So what was on this person's mind? And then what shaped those questions and how were they received in the day? So that's what interested me so much about Abraham Geiger was to see how his work was received, how it was read in its day. And that gave me a better appreciation for how radical it was. I could see that from, from the discussions in its day. And it made me understand him not as some kind of apologetic figure, but as someone who was actually quite uh, assertive and even aggressive. So my father, first of all, someone who was able to overcome something quite horrific in his life. 
he lost so much. His mother, his sisters, three of his sisters were murdered, and extended family and friends and people people who were writing to him when he was already in the U.S. during the war and begging for help, and he tried so hard. He lost manuscripts that were taken from him when he was arrested in Germany. So, so much he lost, and yet he was never bitter and never moody or withdrawn. And I find just as a person, that is an extraordinary human being. He was an amazing person to be able to do that. And that to me is inspiring. At times, I wish I could be more like him, but at least I know what's possible. In his day, he was writing at a time when he had lost the Judaism of Europe, was destroyed, and he came to this country where so many Jews were contemptuous of Jews and Judaism. People in those days thought, it's all over. Orthodox Judaism is over, being religious, nobody believes in God anymore. All of these things are dying out. And that was the assumption in Israel also. You know, David Ben-Gurion had that assumption. Everybody thought where everything is becoming secular. So imagine what it means to write about religion, about religious Judaism at a time like that, when people are holding all of this in contempt, and you yourself have lost what is most precious to you your family and your religious legacy, the whole environment, what you're committed to, was destroyed. So I think that's a very overwhelming burden that he carried and had to negotiate to be able to preserve his faith in those circumstances, I find very moving. I think that it's a very important and and challenging question to always think about someone who lived in Nazi Germany and then fled to the U.S., you know, what kind of impact that that had. And it's kind of an easy answer to always say that people in the post-Holocaust era were, were always kind of writing in response to the Holocaust uh, and to the destruction of, of European Jewry. But I think that it is interesting that we see that the vast majority of his theological writing was done in a very short period of time. Yes, and when he gave a speech in Yivo, in Yiddish, about the book, it ultimately became the book, The Earth is the Lord's. It was a secular audience, and he spoke so movingly about East European Judaism that when it was over, all of these secular Yiddishists stood up and said Kaddish. And people have criticized that book, The Earth is the Lord's, and said that it's too romantic. And I wonder, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with with an elegy. A poet is allowed to write an elegy. Why shouldn't a theologian? It's not a history book, but it's it's a tribute. It's an elegy, and it's deeply moving. So maybe part of the problem is also that academics are nervous about being moved, and they don't know what to do with that category. They don't know what to do with the aesthetics. Does theology require an aesthetic dimension? I would say yes. Because a theology that's dry and boring and doesn't inspire anybody, well, what's the point? It may be very smart and clever and witty, but if it doesn't move people, why are you writing about religion? By the way, I don't know if you saw, but I did an interview with David Beale about the book. It came out in 2018, 
And one of the things that we didn't talk about in that conversation, I mean, there are all sorts of things that you can't talk about because it's only an hour, was this question of the analytic approach versus the empathetic approach, where that book and so many other books that are written about religion or about the history of religion, written by academics, are written to analyze and understand. You know, I just want to point out something about Feuerbach. Feuerbach is very famous for saying that uh, God is a human projection. But in his later writings, as Van Harvey points out in his superb study of Feuerbach, Feuerbach actually says that if you want to understand religion, you have to ask a religious person. So I don't see a juxtaposition of uh, analysis on the one hand and empathy on the other. On the contrary, and we know this anyway from Gadamer and from other people who work in the field of hermeneutics, that in fact, to understand something means to understand in its own terms also. There is an element of empathy that's a natural part of hermeneutics. The question is really not that. The real issue isn't analysis versus empathy. The real question is what categories do we bring to bear? And when we want to understand religion, my father actually made this point. It is reductionist to put religious experience into sociological categories, psychological categories, and so on. I mean, let's just point out, for example, with all of the hysteria after September 11th, there was a lot of discussion of what was called then fanaticism. So we used in the 19th century, used to call it savagery. Now it's fanaticism. All right. And of course, it was about Muslims, Muslim fanaticism. And all of it was analyzed in terms of social categories and economic categories, et cetera. It's very interesting. You know, if you want to understand liberal religious people, liberal Protestantism, let's say, or Reform Judaism, you don't use those categories. You use very different ones. So don't think that the, the kind of so-called analytic approach of social scientists is so neutral and objective. They're also introducing their own biases, et cetera, into the analysis. And I would call those biases also a form of empathy. It's just that it's an empathy that brings them in, I think, inappropriate directions, unhelpful directions. So what do I want to get out of a book on Hasidism? That's the issue. So what my father did in his book, Torah Menashemayim, is to bring in new categories. There is a category in rabbinic thought called Sorach Gavoha. Sorach Gavoha means a divine need that God needs from us. That's not the Aristotelian God of Urbach and of medieval philosophy, whether it's Islamic, Jewish, or Christian, that God needs us. It's a different way of understanding God. There's something different going on there in rabbinic thought that's rooted in the Bible. That means that you have to turn away from efforts to apologize for rabbinic thought being just like Plato, et cetera, et cetera. And instead, look at it in its own terms and say, what's going on here? What is this religious experience that they talk about God as having a need? What does it do to you as a human being to think about God as needing you? So that's the kind of question you know, that, that Hasidic thinkers are also dealing with. They also are talking about it, Sorach Kavoha. The challenge, I think, especially people who, who don't necessarily come from a religion background, is, is the same thing that we see, the kind of the, the knee-jerk reaction of Yosef Yerushalmi in the last chapter of Zahor, where he talks about some German book that was written about the missionizing of, of the Jews and why the Jews did not convert to Christianity. And Yerushalmi is basically like, it's complaining about this German writer who gives the explanation on the side of the Jews 
the explanation on the side of the Christians and the explanation on the side of God, right? Saying, well, how can you give the explanation from God, right? And I think that the part of the challenge is that people are scholars and, and academics you know, writing in an academic forum or in an academic framework. They shy away from God as a category because you know they're they're in a secular framework. Part of what I'm trying to get here, I think, is that the challenge of studying, for instance, Hasidism is that God needs to be a category because the people who are Hasidic Jews, they believe deeply in God and in the religion. And you can't just understand it from an intellectual or historical point of view, but also from their point of view. I don't think you can understand it from God's point of view because that cannot be discerned. But I think that's part of the challenge of sort of how your father's work has been studied because of the fact that he engages with theology in the deep way that he does. And also because he is someone who was willing to use those same tools to study things like Hasidism and other aspects of Judaism. And I think that it raises these important questions about why what we do matters. You know, this is in a certain way part of what the podcast is about as a whole, right? You know, why Jewish history matters. And I think that that these challenges that we're talking about here in terms of how people study Jewish history uh, and how they study Judaism is because you know, we can't necessarily get at why these things matter unless we take it from the point of view of the people themselves. I agree. So what do we get from my father? We actually get an insight into the mind of a religious Jew, of someone who was so deeply immersed in Judaism more than any other thinker I know of, whether it was the Torah and Talmud and Midrash and medieval philosophical and Kabbalistic and modern thought. It's amazing what his mind encompassed. He studied all the time. And yet at the same time, he also knew Western history and philosophy and Christian thinking, Greek, Latin, Arabic. I have notes that he took from his reading on the history, for example, of the Protestant Reformation. That's pretty amazing. He knew so much, but it's the consciousness of the person that becomes so important. How he thought, uh, how he experienced the world. And from that, you know, there's a kind of distillation of Judaism in his mind and his work the essence, a kind of essence that comes alive. And at the same time, his work is filtered through his own life experience. To think, you know, how did these experiences that, that he had impact his work? What's extraordinary is to see a profound theologian and scholar with so much care about the world around him and such a passion. So already he spoke out against the Korean War, for example. But more than that, it's a kind of what I, I don't like to use. It's, a, it's the opposite of provincialism. You know, my father wrote about Auschwitz and Hiroshima, and he used that phrase. Don't find that so much, and less and less often, I think. Auschwitz and Hiroshima. So his concern was with all, all human beings. I think that's pretty amazing. When I look back, but I also would say that uh, he felt that, for example, he used to say, if there's any hope for the future of Judaism in America, it lies with the black church. That there was a kind of spiritual aliveness in the black church that was 
the opposite of what he found in a lot of American synagogues. Mm-hmm. And it reminded him of davening in a Hasidic shtibel. So it wasn't just that he wanted to give something to the civil rights movement. He felt grateful for what the black church gave to us as Jews. I think that there's so much to talk about and think about there. I feel like you, you know, made a handful of references to your own research and your own work on 19th century German scholarship on the Jews. And you, know, you also spoke briefly about some questions about gender and Jewish studies. And you talked about what it means for disenfranchised people to study a topic. What is the connection between your engagement with your father's work and your efforts to publish it and your broader intellectual and scholarly projects that you've been pursuing of your own? I suppose part of what influenced me was that um, my father often felt that he was better understood by Christians than by Jews. And that, plus the awful way he was treated at the seminary, made me take an interest in Christian thought. When I took a course on New Testament as a freshman in college, we read a book by Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, that's in English, it's called Primitive Christianity. And the chapter on Judaism was so horrible to me at the time. I felt like I was reading Mein Kampf. But anyway, I decided to, to work in the field of Hebrew Bible. And there was such a difference between the way in which the Bible inspired me from listening to my father and also Dr. King and the way scholars were treating the Bible, the kinds of questions and issues that the scholars were asking about the Bible seemed petty and silly. And so I decided what concerned me really was the history of biblical scholarship and why it had become so pathological. I'll just give you an example. I went to a seminar once, just sat in when I was thinking of graduate school, and the professor wrote a verse from the Psalms on the blackboard. And I don't remember the verse exactly, but it is something like, and the gates of the city were singing the praises of the Lord, some inanimate object. And the professor said, well, we all know that gates don't sing, so there must be a scribal error. So we spent the whole two-hour class showing that based on some, I don't know, some Akkadian this or that or Ugaritic something or other, in fact, you could switch some letters around and amend the text, correct the text. And at the end of the class, what did he produce? On the gates of the city were written the praises of the Lord, because gates don't sing. So there was no sense of poetry. And that's what annoyed me about biblical scholarship. And that's why I decided I wanted to study it. So in some sense, it was also because of my father and the way his work inspired me and, uh, and his voice inspired me and Dr. King inspired me. And I guess for me, a more interesting question than the one that professor was asking is, what does it mean? How does it happen that a text inspires people to bring about social change? And why is it the prophets are so inspiring in the United States and we're not inspiring in Germany? How is it that there could be a religious movement against racism based on the Bible in America and nothing like that? against anti-Semitism in Europe. So those are the kinds of questions that concern me. Right. I mean, I think one line that's really interesting, and it's something that, that you mentioned, is that your father was so highly critical of Protestant biblical scholarship. And that in your writing, you know, you have your book on uh, 
Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus, you know, you see this come through very clearly. Also, this very critical attempt to engage with biblical scholarship from the 19th century in, in a very critical way. So I think that, that that's one connection. Yeah. And then also I wrote a book about Nazi theologians, one of whom had been at the University of Berlin when my father was there. And I have some letters from him to my father. But I think part of it was also that uh, children of of Holocaust survivors feel they have to do something. And that was my my something to do, to write a book exposing some of these people. Like you said, though, um, all of this raises very important questions. You know, it's not just an intellectual issue. What does it tell us about today? Where do you hear the voice of the prophets in the state of Israel today? You do a little bit, rabbis for human rights and so on. It's not enough. Yeah. You know, I wrote a book about... Protestant theologians who wanted to de-Judaize Christianity. And I worry sometimes that there are Israelis who want to de-Judaize Zionism. What do you mean when you say that? Because you could say that about, you know, the people who wanted to negate the diaspora from, you know, 80 years ago. When they negate the diaspora, they want to negate Judaism. And we all know that, the, the Zionist strand that says, pious Jew we have to get rid of and be macho men and so forth. Uh, but I, my children went to Schechter. And in eighth grade, they bring over a group of kids from Haifa, from the Reali School, a very prestigious school. And the kids came, and they had never been to a synagogue, Jewish kids, growing up in Israel, had never been inside a synagogue. What is that about? Is this a Jewish state? Where's the Jewish? So my colleague, Shaul Magid, has written about Mayor Kahana and has a book forthcoming, and about Shlomo Karlebach, and the way they inspired young Jews. In, in the 50s, mostly in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and they're kind of a counterpart to my father, very different. I think what Mayor Kahana said was, never again to the Jews. And my father said, never again to any human being. And we as Jews in America stood at a crossroads and had to choose one or the other. Which is it? Hillel Halkin published a book in the 70s called Letters to an American Jewish Friend. And he said in one of the letters coming from an Israeli, how can you as a Jew be so involved in the civil rights movement? It's not a Jewish concern. So my father said, no, it is a Jewish concern. How other human beings are being treated is very much a Jewish concern. So there is, there is a human dimension in my father that we need to rescue because there have been a lot of attacks against that human dimension. I mean, I think it, it raises uh, an important question, a very important one, which is what is the role of these perspectives and of, and of this legacy in the 21st century? And when we talk about American Jews, whether we talk about America, whether we talk about Israel or elsewhere, what do you think is the importance of Heschel and why he matters now 50 years you know, after the fact, essentially? My father matters to anyone who has a heart and cares about a heart, and anyone who has a mind and wants to think deeply and come up with original, unique ideas, and to anybody who has a soul and wants to live as a human being and cultivate this one life that each of us is given. My father matters politically also, and I have to say that uh, it's not, not only am I concerned with what it is to be human. But on a very concrete level as well, I'm concerned about the racism of this country and the fact that we could elect somebody like that 
sitting there in the White House. And the fact that there's so many Jews who support this person, why? And they tell me, well, he moved the embassy to Jerusalem. So what? That matters? When he says horrible things, when he supports the, these neo-Nazis running around and won't speak out in a strong voice against it? What's going on? I, I, I don't know where, where I'm living anymore. I thought we cared about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, and we held people responsible. And then I have to say, what about women? And it's not only in the academic world. I had a conversation recently, by the way, with the director of one of the most important Jewish federations in this country. And we talked about some of the scandals that have come out of the Harvey Weinstein and Robert Kraft and, and so and other people as well. And he dismissed it all. And I made the point that, you know, university, would you be allowed to behave in such a way and talk like this? He said, oh, well, the universities have gone too far. And I think, do you know, you American Jewish women and men, when you give your money to the Jewish Federation, have you asked them what their thinking is on these issues? Do they care about you as women? Or are they only going to defend wealthy people, even if they exploit women? What what do we know? Are these our leaders, our representatives speaking on my behalf? I find that completely intolerable. Yeah. I mean, I think that the world that we're living in is the kind of one that, that really asks us to ask, what is going on? I, You know, is it really, I asked this federation person, when you give a grant for a conference, why don't you stipulate Please aim for gender parity in your conference that we're funding for you. Just ask that. You don't have to supervise it or make it a law or something. Just ask it. And of course, he just dismissed me, brushed me off. Now, look at what Francis Collins said today from the NIH, National Institute for Health. He's not going to go to a conference if it's all men. Finally, we hear, why can't the Jewish organizations be the headlights leading us forward? And recognizing that we actually have just undergone a very important feminist moment in our human history, that there has been a social revolution, that some things are never going to be acceptable again. Princeton University Press has made it very clear with their new editor-in-chief, who happens to be a Dartmouth graduate and a woman, that they will never again publish a book authored by only eight men with blurbs from only men, et cetera, et cetera. That's not happening anymore. And I would like to see Jewish organizations at the forefront of this. What would be so terrible if they said this? No more conferences of all men. What would be so terrible? Really? It wouldn't be so terrible. No, I don't think so. I think actually it would be marvelous and it would be a way of bringing Jews in. My father said in the civil rights movement, there's so many young Jews who got involved and went to the South who didn't know the Jewish religious meaning of their involvement. Because no Jewish institution, organization had talked about it in those terms and it conveyed it to them. So as far as I'm concerned, the feminist movement is also a Jewish religious movement. It has Jewish religious meaning. And I don't want to see these organizations fail yet again. Commitment to women's rights is also a Jewish commitment and a Jewish religious imperative that needs to be articulated clearly by all the Jewish organizations that function in the United States. Even all of those many that are led by men with male-dominant boards, I think men can be our allies as well. I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, I try to be. 
I mean, this has been an issue with, with the podcast that I've tried to engage with more and more. I think the first set of episodes that I did were almost exclusively with men. I mean, I can come up with all sorts of excuses as to why that happened, but it's something that I've tried to to correct for over the past year or so to try to do better. I mean, I think that it is a challenge because there are all sorts of systematic and systemic forces at play. Uh, you know, there was that whole series of of essays, the ones in feminist studies and religion. It is an issue that has come up again very recently in terms of Jewish studies, but it's throughout our society. I think that one of the challenges that we have today is that there are so many issues that we need to fight for. And part of the challenge is to have those powerful voices who are willing to speak up about it. And I think that, at least for me, that's one of the reasons why yes. you know, your father matters, because you know, personally, I'm not that religious. So the theological stuff doesn't speak to me as much. But I think that he used the tools at his disposal to fight for what he thought was right, which I think is something that not a lot of people are doing today. I agree with you. But I hope he can inspire. And I think there are some who are very inspired by my father who keep the faith alive. (laughs) Looking back and also looking forward, why do you think that that what your father did and what your father wrote and, and all of that matters? The people who faced the Alabama State Troopers at the foot of Pettus Bridge on March 7th, 1965, then charged them and beat them. Those people still kept their faith alive. And they knew what they were up against. I find it extraordinary that people could act in that nonviolent way, even when they saw children being attacked by water hoses in Birmingham. And just to give you an example, water hose hits your head, it tears your hair out. It's violent. It's horrible. How do you maintain nonviolence in the face of violence? A lot was taught, by the way, not just by Gandhi and by the Bible, but also by communists who haven't gotten enough credit, I think, for their contribution to nonviolence. So we're living in a very bad time right now, and it is frightening. But I think of what my father had to live through was far worse. So I think he offers us a moment of inspiration, a way to keep ourselves, our integrity intact and inspire us to go forth. What do we do? Yeah, the problems are overwhelming. We sit down and we figure out what we as individuals can contribute, what we can do. And we pick the issues that we can devote ourselves to and the people we can align ourselves with. And I think we also have to put ourselves in the belly of the beast and not just talk to people who agree with us, but go out and talk to people who don't agree with us. And that's why I disagree when people say in the Jewish community, well, I won't talk to this or that group because they support BDS. Those are the people I want to talk to. I want to explain Zionism to them. Those are the people I need to talk to because I think they've misinterpreted. And I want to listen to them also and hear what what is motivating them and why they fasten on this particular issue and not so many others in the world. So uh, I hope my father is an inspiration to people, to know that how important it is to talk to people you disagree with, to be open to others and to listen to them. I also think he gives us a model of Judaism that's very different from other thinkers. I don't know if anybody else who has such a depth of understanding of Judaism and combines it with a tremendous concern for humanity and so many different issues. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig. 
And thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.